1963, Americans smoked 523 billion cigarettes. That's according to a New York Times article from that year. While cigarette smoking has declined by more than 70 percent since then, the country still has a nicotine problem, including our youngest citizens. E-cigarettes are now the most used tobacco product among high school and middle school students. Last year, more than two million young people reported using e-cigarettes, according to the CDC. Now the FDA is trying to get the problem under control. Last month, it banned the e-cigarette company Juul from selling its products, but the ban was temporarily reversed after Juul sued. So, what's next in the fight to regulate e-cigarettes? And is there a place for these products among adult smokers trying to quit nicotine altogether? We'll answer those questions and get into much more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions, and you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing e-cigarettes and vaping. Joining us now is Mitch Zeller. He's the former FDA director of the Center for Tobacco Products. Mitch, welcome back. Great to be with you. Also with us is Dorian Furman. She's the co-founder of the grassroots organization Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes. Dorian, it's great to have you. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be here. And Cliff Douglas. He's the director of the University of Michigan Tobacco Research Network. He's also the former vice president of tobacco control at the American Cancer Society. Cliff, welcome. Hi, Jen. Thank you. Great to be here with you. So let's start with the basics. Cliff, what is an e-cigarette and how is it different from a traditional cigarette? Sure. Uh, An e-cigarette is actually um, misnamed because it is not at all a cigarette. Um, You know, to contrast it, a cigarette is a combustible tobacco product that contains tobacco. It's lit and burned. And when uh, that's done, it produces about 7,000 chemicals, about 70 of which are carcinogens, in other words, known to cause cancer in humans. But by contrast, an e-cigarette is a battery-operated device that contains uh, nicotine in in most cases. It contains uh, glycerin or glycerol, a few other substances that are used to uh, uh, transmit the nicotine from the device and the other contents, in some cases some flavors, menthol, etc., which we'll talk about too. Uh, the user. Um, they produce fewer than 3% as many uh, of the chemicals that are found in cigarette smoke. Mitch, what are the known health risks associated with smoking e-cigarettes? Well, no one knows the long-term health risks because they haven't been around long enough uh, to be studied. Um, short and medium-term health risks, uh, there's uncertainty. The, the number one public health concern when it comes to e-cigarettes is Um, finally, there is a way to deliver nicotine into the lungs without having to burn tobacco leaves and inhale those 7,000 chemicals, as Cliff said. And it's a dilemma. On the one hand, this is a a technology that could potentially help the 30 million Americans who still smoke, almost all of whom are addicted, uh, transition to a, a less harmful product. But the other side of the coin is, okay, now we have nicotine that can be delivered into the lungs without having to burn tobacco leaves. And that's where the kids' concern comes in because 
um, as you said in the introduction, this remains by far the most popular tobacco product with kids, and kids shouldn't be inhaling nicotine into their lungs. Well, we should also note that the CDC um, began to investigate a steep rise in hospitalizations um, in 2019, and this was linked to the use of vaping products. And by 2020 in February, they'd recorded over 2,800 hospitalizations. In 2018, the Surgeon General published an advisory on e-cigarette use among young people. Here's part of that advisory. Quote, e-cigarette aerosol is not harmless. Most e-cigarettes contain nicotine, the addictive drug in regular cigarettes, cigars, and other tobacco products. Nicotine exposure during adolescence can harm the developing brain, which continues to develop until about the age of 25. Nicotine exposure during adolescence can impact learning, memory, and attention. In addition to nicotine, the aerosol that users inhale and exhale from e-cigarettes can potentially expose both themselves and bystanders to other harmful substances, including heavy metals, volatile organic compounds, and ultrafine particles that can be inhaled deeply into the lungs. And we should note we also reached out to the current Surgeon General's office for updated guidance, but we did not hear back. Amitch, to be clear, the use of any tobacco product, including e-cigarettes, is harmful, especially for young people, correct? Yeah. I mean, all tobacco products are harmful. The, the, the question now that we have e-cigarettes e is, what is the relative risk of a product that actually doesn't have any tobacco in it, doesn't involve the burning of tobacco leaves and the inhaling of those 7,000 chemicals? Um, what is the relative risk of that product and for whom? So it's sort of like two critical questions. Who's using the product and how are they using uh, just just one amendment to what you said earlier. The What happened in 2019 um, and those hospitalizations was not directly linked to the conventional normal use of e-cigarettes. What was going on there um, is e-cigarette devices were being converted by some middle person and it, probably a criminal enterprise so that it could be used to uh, inhale uh, THC. And then the THC was diluted with an oil and the hospitalizations and the deaths were due to that use of the device. That's not using the device as it was intended. Thanks for that clarification. Dorian, your teenage son battled an e-cigarette addiction for several years. What was that experience like for him and for your family? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something you don't expect. And when we began our journey, I didn't realize that he was actually using at the time. You know, we began our journey when Jewel sent a representative into our kid's school to discuss um, it was, you know, during an anti-addiction talk. And during the talk, he spoke about Juul and said he didn't want the kids as customers, but Juul was, quote, totally safe and about to get FDA approval, which we all know wasn't true. So I later did find out that my son was Juuling, as so many kids were Juuling in 2018, because Juul had, you know, been marketing to kids on social media where, um, where parents were not present. And they used their fun flavors and their incredibly high-level of nicotine in the stealth, you know, flash drive devices to get kids hooked. So it was very difficult. My son tried to quit many, many times. It took a few years. He finally did quit and he's not juuling or using any other e-cigarette now. Juul was the trend at the time. Now there are a multitude of copycat um, products out there. And, you know, I have to agree with Mitch. It is not proven yet how safe these products are. They just have not been around long enough. And to the Avali question, you know, Mitch is right about, you know, 70 or 80 percent of those uh, of those hospitalizations were due to vitamin E acetate, but not all of them were. And some of those kids were only using e-cigarettes and they had 
incredible um, reactions to the products in those e-cigarettes. We're actually still getting reports from pediatricians, from the American, American Academy of Pediatricians, from, um, you know, from hospitals that kids are still being hospitalized because e-cigarettes don't have portion control. It's not like a cigarette where you smoke a cigarette and you put it out. These kids are using them to excess. They are vaping an entire e-cigarette, which is the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes, you know, in less than a day. So the the toxicity is enormous. Cliff, according to the National Institutes of Health, roughly a quarter of high school seniors say they've vaped in the last year, but roughly half of high school seniors say they've had alcohol in the same time frame. So put this problem of teen vaping into context for us. How bad is it, especially compared to other teen drug use? Sure. It's a great question. And, and, and as a parent of a 19-year-old, by the way, who has vaped himself, this is personal to me as well. Um, I think there are a couple of clarifications that are important here. And, and Jen, you've highlighted one, which is that uh, from the perspective of the, the number of uh, risky behaviors that our kids engage in, and they do, and many will inevitably, um, the, the data around alcohol use around smoking uh, cannabis or vaping cannabis, for that matter, uh, and engaging some other behaviors as well, uh, you know, driving uh, in unsafe ways and, and so on, uh, they tend to be at a much higher rate and cause much more uh, concern and actual harm to our kids than what we've seen in general across the population around vaping. I do want to clarify, by the way, that there actually is essentially no evidence that conventional nicotine-based vaping products have caused any of the injuries or certainly the deaths uh, that resulted from what was referred to as Evali. Evali, in fact, is misnamed because it refers to e-cigarettes as part of the acronym. There are no data uh, around that. In fact, globally, uh, I'm not aware of any credibly documented case of a single uh, aerosol, you know, vaping aerosol-related death from vaping versus 1,300 cigarette smoking cause deaths every single day uh, in the United States. But I think that one thing that's worth noting, and I, I think you noted it earlier with, with a statistic, is that in the last two to three years, um, teen vaping has declined by a whopping 60%. In fact, the estimate is 62%. Um, high school e-cigarette use peaked at about 27% for having tried it at least once in the last 30 days in 2019, and we're back down to about 11%, and, and less than 1% of high schoolers in America today uh, are, have used Juul in the last 30 days. So I understand the concern around that because Juul was implicated in the increase in youth vaping uh, in 2018 and 2019, but it has largely disappeared, fortunately for all of us with kids who, whom we're concerned about. Here's a message we got from Bill in North Carolina. As a parent of two children that have both become hooked on vape uh, products, it's a real concern because the amount of nicotine that my my children are getting is far and above the amount of nicotine that, that you would be able to get through the normal cigarettes of my day, and it's it's a real concern, real problem. 
We also got this tweet from Mark who says e-cigarettes have the potential to be a game changer for smoking cessation, but only if they are regulated by the FDA as therapeutic products, not as recreational products. And we should also note that the legal age to purchase e-cigarettes and tobacco products is 21 as of 2019. So Cliff, let's circle back to Bill's message. Is it true? Do e-cigarettes expose people to greater levels of nicotine than regular cigarettes? Uh, Jen, you know, there is a lot of controversy around that. And I, and I fully understand why people must be so confused because, you know, the, the most recent research that's been published around that issue has found that the nicotine in e-cigarette liquid cannot be translated into cigarette equivalents, although we often hear sound bites around that. So let me give you a couple of very specific uh, bits of information. A jewel pod, for example, contains about 40 milligrams of nicotine. And if you assume an intake of one milligram of nicotine per cigarette, that would suggest that one jewel pod equals 40 cigarettes, which would be two packs. But we have learned that actual vapors take in from uh, one jewel pod an amount of nicotine equivalent to about 18 cigarettes, so less than half than might be suggested there. And importantly, uh, new users, which largely means kids, get less because people use the products differently. Um, I'm not saying that's a good thing by any stretch when it comes to uh, underage youth, but it is important to understand that, I think, when people are concerned about it and, and want to know what's really going on. Now, Mitch, our caller, Bill, pointed out nicotine levels in e-cigarettes, and the FDA is currently working to implement a nicotine cap for these products. Explain what's happening there. What FDA is, is working on is a nicotine cap in combustible products, not e-cigarettes. Huh. Um, so what, what, what we have today with all the progress that's been made in reducing consumption and prevalence of the most harmful form of nicotine delivery, which is combustible cigarettes, cigars, little cigars, is looking back over the last 50 years, extraordinary progress. Nonetheless, it remains the leading cause of preventable disease and death. And that takes us into the sort of two sides of the e-cigarette conundrum. Um, we, we know from the modeling that we did at FDA that if, uh, if the cigarette as we know it um, uh, only contained minimally or non-addictive levels of nicotine uh, and we avoid the whack-a-mole problem by also taking nicotine levels down in other combustible products that smokers would switch to, the modeling that FDA did projected out through the end of the century – uh, suggests that over 7 million deaths could be averted because future generations of kids who had been identified by cigarette companies as replacement smokers for addicted adult smokers who die or quit will engage in risky behavior, will try to smoke, but the cigarette of the future would not um, uh, addict them. And so that's why we would have a dramatic reduction in uh, smoking rates and and avoid millions of deaths down the road. So, so wait, I, I want you to just, I want to make sure I'm understanding this. The FDA is seeking to put a cap on what we would think of as traditional cigarettes or combustible products with the idea that that would lower people's potential addiction to that product? I'm, I'm not quite understanding. Two things. First, uh, the research that's been done shows that you get a whole bunch of spontaneous quitting if the only cigarette that someone has access to is a cigarette with, with levels of nicotine that are minimally or non-addictive. But the tobacco industry knows that the future of the cigarette business still rests on young people experimenting with cigarettes becoming regular smokers, becoming addicted, and in the words of some of those old industry documents, being the replacement smokers for current generation 
of smokers who, who stop or die. Um, so, but what if future generations of kids could only experiment with a cigarette that could no longer addict? And, and that's the public health upside of capping the maximum allowable, of, allowable level of nicotine in cigarettes and other combustible products. But does that, does that model work if someone is smoking multiple cigarettes? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand how you could, if someone's in, instead of smoking one cigarette, they just switch to smoking 20 of this lower level right. cigarette, does that still so hold great, true? So great question. And the, and the research that's been done over the last 15 years has answered that question. Because the last thing that FDA would want to do was come up with a policy that has the unintended consequence of uh, just having smokers engage in what's called compensatory smoking behavior. And whether it's smoking more cigarettes, keeping uh, the, the, the puffs in longer, inhaling uh, uh, more deeply into the lungs, that's been studied. Those questions have been asked. And as far as I'm concerned, answered. We know what um, the level can be where you can minimize the amount of so-called compensatory smoking behavior. The responsibility that the government has, though, is in a world where cigarettes are no longer capable of creating or sustaining addiction, to, to go back to the e-cigarette question, what role should alternative and potentially less harmful products play, including FDA-authorized medicinal nicotine products like the gum, patch, and lozenge? And I think that uh, the government will have to be studying that very, very carefully as FDA proceeds with a rule to transform the cigarette as we know it so that it's no longer capable of addicting. So, Cliff, if, if the FDA is moving to put heavier regulations on combustible products, what kind of impact would that potentially have on e-cigarettes and vaping products? Sure. Uh you know, first of all, let me just note uh, and, and get to that question that, that one thing I don't think we've touched on yet is that youth smoking today, going back to the replacement smoker concern that Mitch just articulated so nicely, uh, have reached historic lows. Youth are barely smoking cigarettes now, which is something that all of us should be celebrating from the rooftops. It's an extraordinary change that's taken place at an accelerated level in just the last few years, coincident to uh, vaping having become somewhat more prevalent. And I'm saying somewhat because now it's, of course, dropped again. Can, uh, I, can I just pause here for just one moment, Cliff? Please, we got an ahead. email from Meredith who says, as Cliff knows and Mitch can confirm, FDA has explicitly stated that last year's National Youth Tobacco Survey results about youth vaping was not meant to be viewed as a trend since the survey was conducted during lockdown with a different methodology. Can you speak to that? I, I can, and I would defer to Mitch as well with his expertise in this area. It is not a perfect apples-to-apples apples comparison because, as we all know all too well, the pandemic period has been highly peculiar. Kids were at home. My own son was at home uh, trying to uh, uh, deal with school for, for a period of time. So it's not exactly the same. But we do have a strong sense, and I think that the CDC, who has tracked these numbers, has made clear that a lot of progress has taken place, even if the numbers are not perfectly comparable. Mitch, would you like to add to that? Yeah, what I would say is um, when, when the data was released last year, both uh, CDC and FDA made clear no one should be making year-on-year comparisons because the data was collected last year in the middle of, of the pandemic with um, 
kids being deprived of social sources of e-cigarettes for the for the most part uh, because of uh, not being able to be back in school and, and not having those social interactions, which um, is a tremendous source of access to all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes. So while I agree that we may be trending downwards, we should be very, very careful about making any kind of a, you know explicit statement of it's going down. The other point I would make is, while Cliff is correct that we have historically low youth cigarette smoking rates. One of the unknown facts is that every day more kids experiment with cigars than with cigarettes. We've made tremendous progress in getting the word out to kids about cigarettes. Why is it that, that we now know that, that more young people experiment with mass-produced cigars, little cigars, and cigarillos each day? than cigarettes. So we've still got a lot of work to do when it comes to harmful combustible products being popular with kids. We're discussing regulating vaping products. To send us your questions for future shows or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation on vaping and e-cigarette products with this message from Catherine in Virginia. I used e-cigarettes for a period of time just to get uh, away from actual cigarettes. And it worked. I don't use e-cigarettes anymore, uh, nor do I smoke. Uh, So I I know uh, myself and several other people that have basically quit smoking by using e-cigarettes. Cliff, when we talk about vaping as a smoking cessation um, tool... What kind of regulations do we need to have around that, to your mind? Sure. Uh, And I continue to reference this, but we have uh, Mitch Seller, who is a a leading expert on some of these questions as well. Um, What we do know is that the FDA regulates uh, nicotine and tobacco products along two different sort of pathways. One is through the Center for Tobacco Products that Mitch Seller led for, for many years, Uh, And the other one is the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, or CEDAR, which regulates the medications that we've talked about, medicines, nicotine replacement therapies, uh, and the like. Now, we do know that while, again, it's controversial and the data continue to be developed, we have widespread testimonials, and I've seen a a number of them in response to your inquiry on, on Twitter in the last day for this program, from individual uh, former smokers who used vaping to quit, that it does help a lot of people. The data show now that when it comes to Juul, for example, uh, that they uh, say that based on their surveying, uh, about two million people have switched to Juul from cigarettes, uh, and that given that half of long-term smokers will die from their smoking, that could actually point toward the potential saving of as many as a million lives based on having switched. And that is a form of quitting or cessation, if you will. We can define it in different ways. Uh, Some folks would suggest that the only cessation that counts is quitting all nicotine use. Uh, Many other experts suggest that the important cessation that that we, we need to focus on here is really getting off of these lethal combustible tobacco products. And if you use nicotine in other ways, whether it's in the form of a medicinal lozenge or patch uh, or gum or a vaping product, um, that is far, far better for your health. Uh, Mitch, there was a lot of concern about how these vaping products were being marketed towards kids, towards teens. How has the FDA responded to that? If we look back over the last five plus years or so, 
um, we see that there was a tremendous amount of completely irresponsible marketing of uh, e-cigarette products to kids, whether it was with obvious kid-appealing uh, candy names, breakfast cereal names, uh, the use of cartoon imagery, or in one case, we found a company that was selling hoodies with stealth pockets and stealth drawstrings so that you could vape and then hide the fact that you were vaping. So there are a lot of irresponsible companies out there using a technology that could potentially help some addicted smokers transition away from cigarettes to appeal to kids. And over the last five plus years, FDA has had to issue hundreds and hundreds of what the agency calls warning letters to the companies that are engaging in those inappropriate behaviors, illegal behaviors, putting them on notice that, you know, you got 15 days to clean up your act or we will pursue further action. And, and what would that further action look like? The further action would be um, sitting down with litigators in the Justice Department uh, and and figuring out which of these companies should be taken to court where there can be a court-ordered seizure or injunction that that stops the company from engaging in that illegal behavior. So there's good news and bad news. Uh, the first 20 or so of those warning letters that we issued on my watch, every single company either stopped selling the product or reformulated the packaging. But then there's the whack-a-mole problem. Uh, because the next time we looked, six, seven months later, there were online retailers that were continuing to sell those same products. So the manufacturer had cleaned up its act, but there were third-party online retailers that were still breaking the law. So part of what FDA has to do is the right kind of monitoring and surveillance, which they're very good at. You can't catch every violation of the law. But hopefully, I emphasize hopefully, there's a deterrent effect from these hundreds of warning letters uh, in an attempt to clean up the marketplace. Dorian, how big of a shift have you seen in the marketing of these products to young people? Um, well, you know, they're not marketing on social media anymore, but there is point of sale marketing. And <clears throat> to Mitch's point, you know, the enforcement has to be there. And I know that they have a huge job. FDA has received millions upon millions of applications and they've denied, as Mitch said, millions of them. However, the whack-a-mole problem exists and these products are being marketed to kids at point-of-sale retailers online, and the flavors and the brands are still there. Whether they've been accepted or not, whether their PMTA, their application, has been accepted, they're still allowed to be sold on the market until the application is, is authorized or denied. And even those brands are still selling to kids. So there really needs to be enforcement, and that's a huge problem. Cliff mentioned enforcement as well, and I think that's really one of the main problems that we have to look at going forward. Cliff, according to a CDC survey, disposable vapes are the most popular vaping device among middle and high school students. Explain what those are. Yeah, and, and I'd like uh, you know Mitch to have a chance to pitch in as well. Uh, basically, instead of uh, reusable devices like a Juul, for example, since everyone's more familiar with that, to which you attach new pods after they uh, are used up, Disposable uh, disposables are products that you, you buy, you use, and you toss them out, and you use another one. And and I'm so glad that, uh, uh, that that we're talking about that right now because, you know, compared to, uh, for example, the the uh, the great reduction in use or interest in Juul, for example, among high schoolers or middle schoolers, for that matter, uh, among uh, kids who use vaping products now, uh, a bit more than a quarter are estimated to use Puff Bar, which is one of those disposables. And I have to say that this is a, a serious concern. They do skirt the law, uh, certainly in some cases, as we've been hearing. And I think that the Food and Drug Administration has really uh, got to, to do everything it can to get its arms around this, this, this challenge, because what it's doing, 
as Mitch highlighted, is it is jeopardizing uh, the genuine and legitimate effort to help some of our most disadvantaged and marginalized citizens uh, get off of cigarettes. Um, so this is something that, that continues to be a challenge and we've got to deal with. Well, Mitch, um, we should mention Puff Bar switched to using synthetic nicotine in its e-cigarettes, which allows it to sort of sidestep the FDA's regulations around flavored vapes. But give us a, a broader understanding of what's happening specifically with that company and, and it's synthetic well, um, the, the good news is that Congress has stepped in uh, within the last uh, six or eight months and, um, and, and cleaned up that problem. Um, you're right that, that prior to a recent change in the law, companies were brazenly taking to social media to announce that they were switching to synthetic nicotine, basically to evade FDA regulation. Um, companies like that somehow managed to um, get Congress to, on a bipartisan basis, reopen the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to do a, a slight change to the definition of a toba- tobacco product to include nicotine from any source. So now FDA has the authority to regulate e-cigarettes regardless of what the source of nicotine is. But I, I wanted to make a more general comment about uh, disposables with Puff Bar being the sort of like the poster child. And I'll, I guess I'll make a little bit of, of news now that I'm retired and can say some things that I couldn't say when I was center director. The agency issued a guidance in early 2020, and the focus of the guidance was on the jewel-like products, the cartridge or pod-based products, uh, which uh, was announced to be the priority um, and that for which f- the only flavors that the agency would, um, would look kindly on were tobacco or menthol-flavored and that all other flavors um, needed to come out. And this was in the form of a guidance. Uh, when uh, the Trump administration said to us at FDA – Um, that that's as far as they were willing to go. I said to the Trump administration, but you're not addressing disposables so that the only thing that's going to happen is the ultimate whack-a-mole is kids will just migrate to this other very easy to to use product. And I was told by the Trump administration, that's as far as we're willing to go. And sadly, it didn't take um, uh, being a rocket scientist for that prediction to come true. That's exactly what happened in the next 12 months. Kids migrated from jewel-like products to the disposable products, and today we have a huge problem with the popularity of disposable products uh, with kids, all dating back to uh, a policy decision that was made in the last administration. What do you think should have happened in that case? What was your guidance for the Trump administration? The strong recommendation that that we made was um, if if we're going to do the best possible job of, of tamping down on the popularity of flavored products with kids, we have to address it in the forms that are likely to be the most popular with kids, which are the cartridge and pod-based products like Juul, as well as the disposable products. There's an, there's an open question about so-called open tank systems and the degree to which um, they are popular with kids, but uh, we at least wanted to avoid the whack-a-mole problem and include disposables in that guidance document uh, and I was told as center director that um, that was not going to be the outcome of the decision and that we would only be going as far as cartridge and pod-based products. Well, as we mentioned last month, the FDA moved to pull Juul products from the market, but the ban was temporarily reversed after Juul sued them. Here's part of a statement sent to us by the FDA. Quote, the FDA is reviewing the marketing denial orders it issued to Juul because in the course of reviewing litigation briefing materials, the agency determined that there are scientific 
issues unique to this application that warrant additional review. And we also reached out to Juul about the reversal, and here's a statement they sent from Juul's chief regulatory officer, Joe Murillo. Quote, we believe that once the FDA does a complete review of all the science and evidence presented as required by law and without political pressure, we should receive an authorization to market our products. So, Mitch, when you think broadly, whether it's the FDA's approach to Juul or um, to to this other company, uh, Puffbar, do you think the FDA is doing enough at this point? I think that the agency is doing its job. Uh, one, one litmus test, whether it's tobacco products, foods, drugs, uh, one litmus test for, and I've been doing this for 40 years now, um, about whether the FDA is doing its job is, um, well, who winds up being happy or unhappy with it, with a decision at the end of the day? And with much of the policy decisions and now the adjudications that the agency has made on these applications, um, there are plenty of people who have been unhappy on both sides. To me, that is sometimes a litmus test that the agency is actually doing its job. And what is its job? To follow the science. Um, to, to call the balls and strikes. And regardless of the political interests and, and outside pressure from all sides, FDA is not in the business of making one side happy and the other side unhappy. It's following the science, following the law. And as I said so far, two courts of appeal have upheld the agency's denial of the applications that were made for certain flavored products. So I would say so far, so good. We've been speaking with Mitch Zeller. He's the former FDA director of the Center for Tobacco Products. Also with us is Dorian Furman. She's the co-founder of the grassroots organization Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes. And Cliff Douglas. He's the director of the University of Michigan Tobacco Research Network. Mitch, Dorian, Cliff, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producers were Haley Blassingame and Arfi Gaddy. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.